You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit our Patreon at patreon.com backslash metagroup. That's patreon.com backslash M-E-T-T-A-G-R-O-U-P. So welcome everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment, the Deepening of Practice series. It's... uh, February 4th, 2021, it's 7.35 p.m. Pacific time. And we've had a request that we uh, do the meditation first, and then uh, I can ramble on about uh, the meditation after. But because we are starting the uh, compassion cycle that we're gonna do, I thought I would just go into a little bit about the compassion cycle for a few minutes and then go into the meditation. Compassion is the the second of the Brahma-viharas. Brahma-vihara is often translated as divine abodes. Metta is the first. uh, Metta is a Pali word, and it's often translated as loving kindness. And it's this sympathetic practice. That is, you practice it within yourself, uh, for yourself. Uh, Compassion practice is different than that because it's an empathetic practice. So the, the... purpose of the formal uh, practice is to train the mind to respond compassionately, but not to be engaged in the actual practice of compassion, because in order to do that, you have to be empathetically connected to somebody else. So what we're really doing in the formal practice is trying to train the mind to automatically respond in a compassionate way when we experience somebody else's suffering. The untrained mind has a tendency simply to turn away from the suffering and reflexively withdraw. It does that from almost any painful experience. And in, when we talk about Buddhist compassion, it's narrowly focused around the experience of someone else's suffering and the willingness to be able to hold that compassionate space for the other person so that, they, that we can help them emotionally regulate. So we uh, open to the possibility of an empathetic connection to somebody who's suffering. We allow that empathetic connection to form, and then we take in the, the empathetic experience of their suffering. We bring our emotional regulation uh, strategies to it be regulated and when it's transmitted back to them uh, through the empathetic exchange, then they're getting a more regulated form of their suffering. And in that process of being able to uh, help them come back into emotional balance. If you don't pay attention to this, you may find that the other person's suffering naturally causes you to cut off from them. So you don't Uh, have that response of openness, and they uh, have the response of actually being rejected by you, can amplify their suffering. Um, The near enemy of compassion is sympathy. Um, And the difference between sympathy and empathy is that sympathy is an internal process, uh, and empathy actually connects you to the other person. We talk about empathy in three levels. The first is just an automatic visceral response to the missing of somebody else's physical or emotional pain. The second is uh, a cognitive empathy where in 
looking at the ex facial expressions and body language of the other person, we understand that that's a reflection of their internal state. And the third is compassionate empathy, where we actually feel a facsimile of their experience in our body. And that's the one that we really talk about mostly in Buddhism, the third level, that compassionate empathy. One of the things about compassion though also is that you can be overwhelmed by the experience of somebody else's suffering and then that can create a dysregulation in you. And so a part of this is to know when that's happening so that you can cut off the empathetic connection and not allow yourself to be emotionally dysregulated by it. Is that all making sense? So what we're gonna do is uh, do some compassion practice for an easy person. So an easy person is somebody who you naturally incline toward and open to the experience of their suffering with the intention of helping to relieve that suffering. It's, it's a, we do it as a jhana practice. So we're looking to hold a high concentration state on the mind state of compassion. So the mind state of compassion is, is different than the mind state of loving kindness. It's this willingness to be open to the suffering experience of someone else. Uh, loving kindness practice is this open-hearted, kind curiosity. Um, if you had uh, caregivers who were inquisitive about what your mind states were when you were young, you would have learned to identify one mind state from another and then uh, be able to have more agency in telling one mind state apart from another. Uh, if you didn't have that, then this may be a whole new uh, territory. So um, understanding that we have mind states, that mind states affect the view of the of self and world that we create, and that you, you can have agency to uh, adjust which mind state you're experiencing in the present moment. And so that's what we're attempting to do in practicing in this way, to develop the capacity for high concentration and also to develop the agency to uh, change afflictive mind states as they arise, arise into beneficial mind states. So we'll do the meditation now, and then I'll talk about- Hey, George, hmm? I have a question. Okay. If that's okay. Um, when I think of compassion um, or having compassion for someone, it feels like a very, or when I bring to mind someone I want to have compassion for, um, I think of the emotion or I guess, you know, the act of compassion. So like having their emotion or, you know, I'm trying to separate that from the mind state. Could you kind of clarify well, the mind state of compassion is really the willingness to hold the empathetic experience of somebody else's suffering. That's what I would call the mind state. And then when you're actually engaged in the act of compassion, you're in an empathetic exchange with someone else, but you are in the role of taking in the suffering, attempting to regulate it, and then uh, feeding it back to the other person in a more regulated state. So you need to attune to the other person. They have to be in front of you. You place your attention on them. They know your attention is on them. They place their attention on you. You know their attention is on you. 
you're touching into the feeling states in the body and separating an emotion, an awareness of the emotional experience of them separate from your own emotional experience. And then you're bringing your capacity to emotionally regulate their experience in you. Um, it's important to be able to separate your own emotional experience from theirs so that you can track whether or not you are in good regulation or not. Because uh, overwhelming suffering can actually dysregulate you and then you actually aren't able to provide emotional regulation and you're actually sending your dysregulated emotional experience to them, which is often more dysregulating for them than their original state of dysregulation. Um, uh, you have a child, so you, you uh, have the experience of them being in, in tremendous emotional upset, I would guess, and then you coming uh, to them and helping them calm down and settle and come back into to balance. Um, it's not so different with adults. It's, it's just sometimes um, we get into a, we can easily get into a kind of outrage with them for getting themselves in the situation they got themselves into in the first place. <laughs> it doesn't relieve us of the obligation to respond in a compassionate way, but it interferes with our capacity to do it. Often is if we're outraged by uh, their behavior that got them in the state of being so dysregulated that they need this, as an external regulator. When you talk about it from the attachment perspective, we all start out as auto-regulators and then somebody comes well enough and we become externally focused. And if we could create a collaborative relationship with them, them uh, and recognize their agenda is different from our own, then that's the crucible where we learn this compassionate exchange. And then we can uh, uh, hold the skills of that and go out and explore and then come back. Uh, when we're dysregulated and can't regulate ourselves. Is that a good enough answer for your question? <laughs> All right. I have a quick question. Um, will you talk about, because you mentioned that having compassion for people who aren't difficult, will you talk about today also having compassion for people who are difficult? Yes, I will. Okay, thank you. Yeah, half the country. <laughs> I find difficult at this moment. All right, here we go. So go ahead and take your meditation postures. So I thought I would talk about compassion and the need for compassion. Um, and I find it interesting in the, in the sense that uh, in the times that we live now where, where everything is so polarized and, and so extremes and people's point of views are so different from one another, um, the sense of this constant activation of the um, moral system that we, we all carry with us. The thing about this moral system, this sense of outrage when we witness somebody engaged in behaviors that we find morally problematic to ourselves is that we each have our own uh, moral compass. And some, uh, they can be quite different. And so one person's outrage is somebody else's treasured activity often seems. 
Um, and then we, we each have this uh, capacity to understand what for us is forgivable and what isn't forgivable. And if somebody commits an unforgivable act in your system of, of understanding uh, the world, what do you do with that experience? In the um, uh, untrained mind, often we cut off uh, people uh, um, that we experience in that way through cruelty, which is um, the, the enemy uh, of compassion. Um, but at the same time, what happens if you have somebody who is engaged in one forgivable act, unforgivable act after another? How do you manage then to forgive that? Or is it even advisable to do that? Um, I'm uh, reminded of my uh, childhood. My best friend in high school was a was Catholic, and we would often go to mass. I I was raised in a Protestant family, so it was more archaeological for me than uh, actually a practice of faith. Um, and uh, he would go to confession, and he would uh, admit his sins, and then. Um, uh, he would repent and he would receive penance and then uh, absolution, which is a process. Uh, repent means that you're, you're, you understand what was wrong in your behavior and you're, and you're willing to stop doing that. And then the penance is, the, is a, sort of a restitution, a spiritual restitution or actual restitution, and then, and then you're forgiven for that. Um, but what happens when you see the activities of other people and you don't have the sense that they see anything wrong with the activities, uh, even though you do, uh, and they have no intention of stopping engaging in any of the activities, even though uh, you, you want them to. Um, and they actually see or, or respond to you with a sense of cruelty. Uh, in uh, being uh, different than than their point of view, I find this this is uh, this happens quite a lot in the current dialogue that we have. Um, uh, had it happen recently with a student where, um, when I attempted to engage in a dialogue about their their views. Uh, the, the just the questioning of that uh, resulted in in you know derogating anger using an attachment term um, it activated their attachment mechanism and their response it was to be belittling you know my my um, obligation to students in as in, in this role as the teacher is to engage them in those dialogues if it seems to me that that they're um, engaged in harming behavior. Um, some, some of these actions, um, I find myself understanding as unforgivable. It doesn't mean that there's an intrinsic or essential 
uh, action that's uh, unforgivable. It's just how it lands within my system. I find it unforgivable and I find it um, uh, prevents me from being, uh, having a sense of safety in the relationship. Um, and so I become guarded and uh, really do attempt to withdraw from the experience of the relationship. And uh, I think that it's probably a good idea that if people are engaged in harming act actions that you withdraw from the experience of being harmed by them. Um, but at the same time, uh, how do you respond in a skillful way that might be actually helpful not only to you uh, and to them, but also to the community which in in which we all uh, exist. Uh, and so this is really this idea that even if the person is engaged in unforgivable actions, uh, that you still attempt to hold a compassionate container for the experience of that. And in, in attempts to um, come into a place where at least there's a possibility of some dialogue, although I'm not sure that that uh, is necessarily possible or even productive. Mainly, uh, part of this is, uh, the main part of this is really about um, creating the sense of openness within yourself to be present for this the experience of everything that happens so that you can be engaged in skillful actions that serve you and also serve uh, the community of people that we live with. Human beings, you know, are these, uh, where we live in these bodies that are designed for complex social interaction. We need to be engaged in community um, in order to, to find a sense of meaningfulness, to find a sense of happiness. Um, I was sitting with uh, uh, my teacher, Dan, this afternoon, and, and I think that, uh, uh, or at least I remember him saying that we're suffering from a plague of narcissism that comes from this, uh, this sense of an, uh, a not well-formed self in people that comes from uh, childhood conditioning. Um, as the circumstances of, of uh, life in this country become more challenging, we have the, you know, an extraordinary level of economic inequality. Um, in Los Angeles, for instance, where I live, half of the children in Los Angeles County grow up in poverty. This is a staggering uh, number. When, when, you, when you think of attachment, uh, and look at the research that, that, that's been done. Poverty is a, is a, is a correlate with insecure attachment. Um, the resources to provide a secure outcome for uh, children to develop into productive adults is not there. Uh, and we know this. Um, when, I, when I first came into the um, meditation rooms, the practice that was considered a prelude to the Brahma Baharas was forgiveness practice. 
Um, I, I taught for many years with somebody uh, who said, forgive everyone everything. And he talked about it as an internal process within yourself so that you don't harbor anger uh, that can be quite corrosive. And, uh, and that um, it was a sympathetic practice. So just within yourself, no need to make any external expression of the forgiveness. But we come to understand that the near enemy of compassion is sympathy. So a sympathetic practice of this is not actually the same thing as a compassionate practice. I like to break compassion down into these steps um, so that you can train yourself to do it. Um, first, we attune to the person that we want to hold in a compassionate container. We place our attention on them and we engage them so that they place their attention on us. And then we open uh, our capacity for empathy and allow an empathetic exchange to form between us. And when we experience in our own body the, the uh, suffering that they're experiencing, we bring our capacity to emotionally regulate it. We regulate it, and then when it's exchanged through it, the, that process of empathy, they receive their suffering back in a, in a reduced way or a more manageable way. And in this way, we're able to co-regulate them. Um, so compassion in English means co-shared and passion or feeling, so the shared feeling. And in, in the Western sense of the word, it's open to all experiences, but in the Buddhist sense, it's narrowly focused just on, uh, on the nature of suffering. When you see somebody and they're engaged in activities which cause their own suffering, and they're unreachable in terms of your, your ability to have a dialogue with them about it, what do you do? continue to hold that compassionate space if you can, but if you find that it's becoming dysregulating for you, then you disconnect from them empathetically and move into a sympathy. So you move out of compassion, say, into metta practice, loving kindness practice, because it doesn't serve you or them to allow yourself to be dysregulated by the experience of their suffering then you have actually two people that need uh, a compassionate embrace and a third or fourth person that would then be able to provide that embrace. When we talk about community, then that, that's the group of people that share a similar uh, understanding of how things might be, and then work toward that uh, ultimate goal of trying to make the community reflect that. And I think that one of the things that happens uh, is happening in our um, country is that these very different views of what that should be um, are forming and they're becoming quite rigid. And actually they're quite far from each other. 
does it make sense then to be able to work within your own community toward the, the view of how you want things to be and allow the other um, community to do the same and just be separate. When uh, I was talking to uh, one of my students who's uh, in finance uh, this uh, afternoon, and she was talking about the dilemma of the inequality of uh, resources or resource distribution in the sense that some people have been denied the opportunity to uh, um, provide themselves and their family with resources through the, the, the structure of our government. Um, mainly through um, the, uh, the tax laws and the, the allocation of, of funds. Um, and that the, the communities that have been denied over and over again access to the financial system have much less than the communities that are, are given free access to the financial system. And so this idea of simply being able to allow the communities to, to pull apart and be separate and function separately um, isn't so workable in, in the sense that we, we have these shared systems. In particular, when we talk about climate change, um, we have the, the one planet and the one climate, and we have one group that is actively destroying the environment, um, the other group uh, recognizes the danger of that and, and wishes that there would be something else. Um, uh, the effect of that is going to be something that we all have to experience. Um, When my teacher says that we have a plague of narcissism um, and that narcissism makes people impervious to caring about anything but their own interests in the moment. Uh, and sometimes uh, they're in a position of power, then it is uh, a situation where they can affect the, the, the outcome for all of us. In a dis 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 disproportionate way. Um, we like to say in this country that we live in a democracy. Of course, we don't live in a democracy. We live in a federalist republic. Um, but even that is a, is a question. We might, it might be fairer to say that we live in oligarchy because the economic inequality has gotten so extreme. When President Carter was the president, the distribution of wealth was very different than it is now. Um, you, you may not be old enough to remember that, but when um, he was president, the upper 10% had 70% uh, of the assets. And now we live in a society where the upper 10% has um, 70, uh, sorry, uh, 87% of the assets. This is essentially the, the, I like to say the denuding of the middle class of their assets, uh, 
in this process of changing it. And so we have, um, but that, that may be not actually um, reflective enough. 1% of society has almost 60% of the assets. And if you go even further up, one, one hundredth of, uh, of our society has 30 or 35% of the assets. It's a huge concentration of money and power at one end. I flippantly sometimes say that most of them think that they live in a high enough floor that when the sea level co rise comes, they won't get wet. <laughs> Um, it may be too late to stop climate change. And so uh, we're going to have to move uh, vast uh, portions of the population of the earth uh, from where they're currently living. In this country, for instance, from sea level rise only, it's predicted that 18 million people will have to move to higher ground, uh, which is a huge uh, number in this country. Uh, if you look at the, the, the whole world, um, it's billions of people that are going to have to be moving because of these, these actions. So compassion then, of course, is turning toward the suffering, not turning away from it. How do we pay attention to these things and how do we act in a deliberate way when the suffering is so immense um, without just in, uh, uh, instinctively shutting it off and turning away from it and focusing narrowly on the things that we, we may have a sense of being um, capable of affecting or powerful enough to affect. And yet in some sense, this turning away from it uh, exacerbates the, the difficulty that we're all going to be facing if we don't respond. And so what I, I, I like to think of this practice of compassion is it's really this exercise in turning toward the things that are difficult, uh, attempting to stay in a, in a state of openness to the experiences that there are so that we have uh, an agency with ourselves to take an action in response to this because all of us are going to be affected by it. And this, includes the one-on-one -on -one exchanges, um, mainly in my own mind, the way that my mind tends toward cruelty is that I, I begin to think that some people are stupid. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a release or a, a, re, a relief of, from uh, the fearfulness that comes from this direction and anger is often that, that sort of, um, what feels better really than just a big blast of self-righteous anger? It's hard to imagine something. Um, maybe uh, a chocolate caramel feels good when you eat it as much as that sense of uh, self-righteous anger. Or a sense of cleverness. Um, I often find myself, um, um, engaging in as a relief from the, the, uh, the experience of our suffering. Um, 
so these dialogues happen, you engage, um, you come from this compassionate place, you're open, uh, you attempt to make some effect, uh, it goes the way that it goes, and then in the next moment when the next opportunity arises, you make another attempt at uh, engaging And this is the actual practice of compassion over and over again, opening, opening yourself and, uh, to the possibility of somebody else's suffering and, and engaging them in, in a way that hopefully is relieving of that suffering um, with at the same time this idea that you need to protect yourself from uh, somebody who might be actively harming or from, from some group that might be actively harming, stepping out of the way. Is that making sense? <clears throat> um, I think that's what I wanna say about that. It's a, it's a, I often find uh, these days that I'm, I'm reluctant uh, to engage in compassionate practice with people that um, I, I find to be uh, deeply unconscious. And so it may also be dependent on uh, the, the place that you're in in the moment when those situations arise, whether you have the capacity for it or you don't have the capacity, because it isn't useful to yourself or to the, the goal of this harmonious community to get so dysregulated by somebody else's suffering that then that causes you to uh, act out your own suffering in a way that, that is harmful. How's that? Good enough? So let me just then review the, the steps of this. In compassion practice, we're engaging empathetically the suffering experience of someone else. So we attune to them. We open uh, to the capacity to sense our own emotions and, uh, and discern uh, the emotions of someone else. This requires a high level of mentalizing and, and uh, an, an opening within yourself to be able to do that. Uh, we know from, for instance, attachment conditioning that uh, not all people are able to do this. Uh, for instance, dismissing people suppress their capacity to feel emotion. And in suppressing their capacity to feel emotion, they suppress their capacity for empathy. Narcissism and dismissing attachment are, are, are easy to correlate. And so when we say that we have a, a plague of narcissism and that, that, that it creates these people that are highly um, self-oriented and indifferent to the suffering of other people, what we uh, discover in, in examining that condition that often they're incapable of empathy and so that they don't actually experience the suffering of other people. When we talk about empathy, these three levels of engagement, the first is that visceral response to the experience of somebody else's pain. If you suppress awareness of your emotions to the point that you don't have that uh, reflexiveness in relationship, then when you cause pain 
to someone else, you don't feel it. So there's no break on your behavior. If you were empathetic, then you could touch into the actual experience of somebody else at the third level and you cause them pain, you would feel the pain that you were causing them and that acts as a kind of break or a stop on further um, infliction of pain. But if you don't feel it, there's no break. It's one of the reasons why I think uh, some people's behaviors get so extreme, they don't feel anything, they don't recognize the consequences for other people. The second level is where you can read people, you can look at their face, you can look at their body language and understand what that internal experience is like for them, but not actually feel it. Um, and the third level is that felt sense of it. We tend to compare the second and third levels, and if they match, then we think that the other person is telling us the truth, and if they don't match, we think that they're lying to us or manipulating us. And so, but it's easy to, to, to game the system and generate a feeling that doesn't actually match what your intention is. Preoccupied people tend to get very caught up in other people's mind states and lose track of their own feeling state. So they have a kind of pseudo um, empathy. Uh, empath is the, is the popular word for that, where they're very engaged in the mind states of the other person, but they lose track of their own feeling states. They lose track of their own motivations. We need to come back into balance. So this attending to our own conditioning and working through uh, that conditioning so we can come into a place where we can actually be present uh, for our own experience and also the experience of other people so that we can move in the direction of this uh, harmonious community where resources are, are um, delivered in a way that's uh, um, equitable. So um, I really uh, like to characterize it these days as this movement of people who think that things should be unequal and people who think that things should be equal as a way of describing these two uh, movements. And uh, if you haven't figured it out already, I'm solidly on the side of things should be equal, not things should be unequal. I don't know how much further we can go into inequality before the social fabric doesn't hold anymore. And, and there's uh, just uh, um, uh, these outbursts of uh, extreme violence. And the, uh, we witness in, in our capital the uh, what seems like a very uh, discoordinated um, and, and naive idea of overthrowing a government without much reflection on what that would actually mean and how much uh, uh, how much hardship that that would cause uh, to so many people when we're in the middle of a pandemic and already the difficulties are so great. So this is the realm of compassion. And, and uh, sometimes uh, I read in the paper uh, about compassion fatigue, just the difficulty of holding the, the, the experience of this moment 
And so we want to move in and out from that, uh, understanding that it's perfectly reasonable when the experience has become overwhelming to pull out of that empathetic experience into a sympathetic stance. But it isn't a permanent withdrawal. It's a, a recognition that as soon as you come back into balance, you need to then push out again into this empathetic uh, experience. I remember uh, Shinzen uh, talking about uh, his teacher, Sasaki Roshi, and how he would go and uh, up to Mount Boli and get him and then drive him to uh, uh, Rinzai-ji, which was a in country club parks, in the country club park section of Los Angeles and how they were driving uh, on the 10 and he looked over at the Roshi and, and tears were just sort of flowing out of the Roshi's eyes and Shinzen said, what's wrong? And he said, I was just looking out at all the people driving and I felt uh, uh, a sense of the, their sadness. Uh, and so I, I started to cry. Um, so can we get to that place where we don't, we are, we are able to experience the, the suffering of the world without needing to turn away from it, uh, as long as we have enough equanimity, knowing that we can easily move into a sympathetic stance if it's overwhelming, um, but not as, a, as a, an off switch, but as a, a refuge, and then come back into um, that active, intentional, compassionate, support as you see around you people needing it. How does that sound? <laughs> um, any questions at all about that? We did the meditation first, so you had that experience. Jacqueline? Yeah, I noticed um, during my practice that um, when I started to naturally uh, feel the, um, the pain of the person I was focusing on, um, I thought about how much I valued that person. And so I wonder if a lot of what you're saying with this divisiveness and these people that feel they need more and more and more and more for themselves, maybe it's a, a thing of value. And, you know, by um, staying on our paths towards, um, you know, putting that space when needed, we can um, find creative ways to develop communication and relationship and compassion with people that are the lack, maybe lacking, you know, because we're all so valuable to each other. And if we can find value in each of one of us, then, then we know that we need each other. So right. <laughs> that's kind of what I learned from the practice. So thank you. Thank you. Someone else? So we're gonna begin a cycle. We did easy person. George, I'll ask a question if you have. Oh, all right, go ahead. <laughs> have you read research by uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett on 
emotions and how they correlate to expression and you know neurophysiology um can you tell me briefly what the research is yeah so she did her own research and also meta-analysis of a lot of studies on emotions and you know fmri studies and basically the conclusion is there's no um, correlation between an emotional state, a physical expression, or the kind of like where people feel emotions or how they're experienced. Uh -huh. So curious in the context of empathy, like the cognitive part, I feel like I can usually tell empathetically what someone's experiencing, but that expression is often between, you know, different people, totally different. So I'm just kind of curious. <laughs> um, was that, was she, is she uh, the one who was attempting to refute the uh, Ekman finding of universal facial expression? Yeah. I am somewhat familiar with that. I don't know that her research has been replicated yet. Hmm. So um, there's, it's, it remains quite controversial. Um, I do think that you mainly have a description and understanding of emotions that you learned in your family system. And so depending on how the family system described them, that's your main reference to them. That there isn't that sense of a universal uh, uh, understanding of them. And so that in each relationship that you have, you need to be able to negotiate the meaning of those things between uh, each person so that you can effectively communicate uh, with them. And that, uh, I think that that's probably how I would put it. Um, the, also the appropriateness in, uh, of them. You know, in my family system, growing up, if you got angry, you were supposed to squelch it and leave the room until you were settled. And then and my, both my mother and father would do that. They would turn red and then they would leave. And then they would come back as if nothing happened. It was, it was confusing. And where did they learn that? Uh, my, grand, my father's mother would turn red and leave the room. Then you would hear things breaking. <laughs> Um, so we learned that uh, it was weak to express anger. That's what we learned. And so as children, we would provoke each other into angry outbursts uh, because whoever uh, had the outburst would be punished and whoever provoked the outburst would not be punished. So that's <coughs> that goes. But then you have uh, your, um, that whole uh, emotional lexicon, that all of, all of what that meaning means, you, you bring to your relationships, of course, and then you have to negotiate with the person that you're in relationship to what their whole bundle means. Uh, Stan Tacken, who I sat with, famously said that he worked with a couple where 
the, the man was from a family where every, every night they yelled at each other all through dinner and got up and did the dishes and went on their way. Uh, and his partner was a woman where she could remember twice in her entire childhood where somebody raised their voice. And so she would become terrified when he yelled at her. And it, for him, it was an ordinary discourse. They couldn't, he couldn't understand why she was overreacting. And, he, and she was frightened. So that making sense. Um, so we're out of time. Thank you for coming. Um, what's coming up is not this Saturday, but the following Saturday is the third day long in the level one series. And then a week, uh, two weeks after that, um, at the end of uh, February is the uh, meditation and attachment uh, or coupling, which is uh, about uh, collaborative relationships, collaborative relationship skills. And it's a lot of the tattooing work that we did. I just talked about it. Um, I have a, a, a meditation and attachment for addiction retreat coming up in April, sort of mid-April. It's a weekend retreat, so it's a Saturday and half of a Sunday when we'll go through the four modules uh, that we use uh, in addressing addiction issues. Um, we just started uh, the beginning series um, and so we're, we're focusing on developing concentration there. If you're interested in that or, um, or you, you might wanna recommend somebody a beginner's series on meditation. Often this class is, is uh, too difficult for people who are just beginning. And then we do have a summer retreat coming up. Um, I think it's on the website, but uh, it may not be yet. I'll check and see, uh, and that's in June. So take a look at that. I offer this class on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. So I offer the teaching freely and then I hope that you'll support uh, me and also the, the work that Meta Group is doing. There's links for donations on the website and also in the email if you, if you got it. Uh, and then we'll see you soon, I hope. Bye now. <laughs>